Well, we've come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons. We're at, we're at our last two lessons for this part. We've been looking at the nature of the atonement, uh, discussing this under the doctrine of salvation. And now we've come to the million-dollar question today. For whom did Christ perform this work of redemption? Or, as you most commonly hear it asked, for whom did Christ die? Now, if you just look at this logically, there are only four standard form propositions in logic. All propositions can be stated in one of these four forms. All A is B, some A is B, some A is not B, and no A is B. So when it comes to this question of for whom did Christ die, we're only left with a few options. Either Christ died for no one, or Christ died for everyone without exception, or Christ died for some and not for others. That's it. Now, I suppose someone could come along and complicate things by arguing, well, you know, they could argue in the abstract something like, well, you know, maybe Christ died for some people in order to accomplish something for them, but he died for others to accomplish something different for them. And I suppose if you want to untether yourself from the Bible, you could argue for all sorts of different scenarios. But that's not how we operate in this church. In fact, that's been one of our pastor's main points in his current sermon series. We don't start in the abstract. We start with the Bible. The written word of God is our foundation. It's from there that we learn explicitly and implicitly through reasoning what we are to know if we want to know the truth. And the purpose behind our last four lessons has been to tether you in the Bible regarding this topic. What does the Bible tell us about the atonement? What does the Bible tell us concerning what Christ actually accomplished for those for whom he died? And we saw from Scripture that for those for whom he died, there is expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. That is, for those whom Christ died, he cleanses their sin and removes their sin's guilt. For those for whom he died, he removes the wrath of God upon those people for their sins. For those for whom Christ died, we saw that he reconciles those people to God. He restores those people to God's favor because God had alienated himself from them due to their sin. And then we saw that he redeems those people. That is, Christ with his own blood purchased not only the people, but everything they would need in order to be saved. And so if you tether yourself to the Bible and seriously consider all that it says regarding the nature of Christ's atoning work, then the answer to our million-dollar question should be fairly obvious and simple. Christ performed this work only for some and not for others. To say that Christ did, this, did all of this for nobody is absurd just on the very face of it. But yet to say that Christ did this for everyone without exception is to ignore everything that we've seen in the past four weeks regarding what Christ actually accomplished with his work. As I've said it before, we know that when, it, when everything is all said and done, when the judgment happens, we know from the scripture that there are going to be people who end up in hell for eternity to pay for their sins. But if Christ is said to have paid that for those people, then what happened? Why are they in hell? Why are they paying for something that God said is our, that he's already taken care of? Did Christ not pay for it? 
Is God lying to us? You see, how you answered the question, for whom did Christ die, is necessarily linked to how you understand the nature of Christ's atonement. If you argue that Christ died for everyone without exception, yet you acknowledge that there will be many for whom Christ died that will end up in hell, then whether you intended to or not, you have completely redefined the nature of Christ's work. John Murray writes, quote, The doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if, as atonement, it applies to those who finally perish as well as to those who are heirs of eternal life. In that event, we should have to dilute the grand categories in terms of which the scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. This we cannot do. The saving efficacy of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption is too deeply embedded in these concepts, and we dare not eliminate this efficacy. We do well to ponder the words of our Lord himself, who says in John 6, 38 and 39, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything which he had given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Murray continues, security is inherent in Christ's redemptive accomplishment. And this means that in respect of the persons contemplated, design and accomplishment and the final realization have all the same extent, unquote. That's such a great quote from Murray. In other words, what Murray is pointing out to us is that the extent of the atonement is necessarily linked to the nature of the atonement. If you say that Christ died for everyone without exception, yet only some of those people make it to heaven while others do not, then you are logically forced to reconsider what it is that Christ actually did, if anything. Because now you have taken the efficacy away from Christ, you've taken the security of Christ's redemptive work away from him and now placed it on individuals. And this simply cannot be because of what we just heard from Christ in John chapter 6. But if you're familiar with John chapter 6, you'll notice it goes on to tell us in verse 41 that there are some Jews that grumbled about what Christ was saying because, quote, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, does any of this language sound like Jesus is just sitting around like, I'm going to make salvation possible, but it's ultimately going to be up to the individuals on whether it becomes a reality or not? Absolutely not, beloved. It's just the opposite here. Jesus here says that he has come to do his Father's will. And his Father's will is that he has chosen some people to have eternal life. And the Father has given those people to Christ for him to secure their salvation. And Christ says he's not going to lose any of them. And he will resurrect them on the last day. So we read the giving of salvation, the work of salvation, the securing of salvation, the final result of salvation, all of it is said to be the accomplishment of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is nothing here said of us where we're contributing to this. 
and to the security of it. In fact, we're told just the opposite. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father grants him. Does this make you squirm a little bit? Does it make you uncomfortable? Well, you're not the only one. And when, verse 60 says, many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Friends, why in the world would Jesus be talking like this if he knew it was going to turn people away? Because, friends, Jesus did not come to offer up possibilities. He's not begging us to make his work worthwhile and effective. He didn't say, I come down from heaven to attempt to give everyone eternal life as long as they cooperate. No, friends, he came to actually seek out and to actually save those whom the Father chose and gave to him. And he says, I will do it. I am not going to lose any of these people. And I will raise them up on the last day. As a matter of fact, right before Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit on the cross, he cried, it is finished. Again, beloved, think about it. How in the world could he have uttered such a thing if salvation was merely a possibility that ultimately would depend on us to make it effective or not? It wouldn't have been finished. It wouldn't have been accomplished. It wouldn't have been complete. But Christ could say that. Why? Because he had completed the work of fulfilling God's purpose. That very purpose we read in John 6. The full price is paid for those whom the Father had chosen. And Christ had appeased the wrath of God towards these people. Beloved, I hope that you see and understand the necessary link between the nature of the atonement and its extent. It's a package deal. And thus we can infer from the nature of the atonement the extent of the atonement. If you mess with one, you mess with the other. But not only is the extent of the atonement inferred from the nature of it, Scripture gives us more reasons, other angles, if you will, on addressing the extent. For example, Scripture often qualifies those for whom Christ died. In the Gospel of John, Jesus states that he dies for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verses 14 through 16, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then in verse 24, we read, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, 
but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Notice very clearly what we find here in John chapter 10. Jesus said that he will die for the sheep, and it's the Father who gave him these sheep, and the sheep will hear his voice and follow him. Also, he has other sheep that are not of this fold. And he says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. But then he turns right around and tells the group of unbelieving Jews that they don't believe because they're not among the sheep whom the Father gave to the Son. Clearly here, Jesus indicates that he did not die for everyone, but for the sheep whom the Father gave to him. To say that Christ died for everyone is to make everyone a sheep, contradicting Jesus' clear statement that not everyone is among the sheep. Further, we read that Christ died specifically for the church. In Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In Ephesians 5, 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In numerous places, we are told that Christ died for many, not all. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Mark 14, 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Further in Romans 8, we have a very clear argument concerning the extent of the atonement. In Romans 8, 32, Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Aha, wait, Jason, hold on. Did you hear it? Paul said God gave him up for us all. There's that word all. The beloved, the word all just means, and we've talked about this before, the sum total of a group of particulars. So what group of particulars does the word all refer to? Well, you've got to look at context. Read the verses prior to verse 32. We'll start in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's the us? Those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justifies, those whom he glorifies. And then verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The us all here is referring to all of God's chosen people. All of those whom he predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies. Hence, Paul says in the very next verse, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then let me give you one more angle to address this question. Lastly, 
Christ's work of atonement is necessarily tied to his work as high priest. And then we can ask the question, for whom does Christ work as high priest? Well, we don't have to guess at this. Jesus clearly and unambiguously tells us in John chapter 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Beloved, how much plainer could Christ be? Christ says he is not praying for everyone without exception. But rather he prayed specifically and exclusively for those whom the Father gave to him. He prayed exclusively for those we just read about in Romans chapter 8. Now in Romans chapter 8, I stopped at verse 33. But let's read that verse again along with the immediate following verse. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see the connection between here and John 17? Christ intercedes for those and only for those whom the Father gave to him, and he does not pray for the world. Beloved, why would Christ not pray and intercede for people that he died for? He died for everybody. It makes absolutely no sense. He does not pray and he does not intercede for everyone because he did not offer himself up for everyone. Well, I'm out of time. Lord willing, we will continue this next Lord's Day and bring this part to a wrap. But I want you to be thinking upon these things again. I, listen, we're not doing this so you can get on Facebook and, and just start a bunch of fights with people. There is such a glorious and wonderful picture here of Christ who has been entrusted by the Father to accomplish a work. And our Lord accomplished it perfectly, completely, despite all of the temptations and all the attempts by the kingdom of darkness to squash him and his work. What a glorious and mighty Savior we serve.